Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it's Nanveen. This is the second of an exclusive two-part report inside one of the most secretive organisations in the country, the intelligence agency, GCHQ. Yesterday, my colleague, the Times and Sunday Times writer, Matthew Side, interviewed the director of GCHQ, Sir Jeremy Fleming. Today, he's meeting some of the other staff to find out what it's like to work inside the GCHQ nerve centre in Cheltenham. Here's Matthew. Have you ever wondered who the people are who help to keep this nation safe? Who's listening out for threats, disrupting plots? GCHQ say that their mission is to keep the country safe by accessing, analysing and occasionally disrupting the communications of the UK's adversaries while protecting the nation's cybersecurity. And today, I'm going to meet some of them. My name's David Abritat. I'm GCHQ's departmental historian. I'm Charlotte. I'm an analyst in the 24 Hours Operations Centre. Hi, I'm Paul Maddinson. I'm the Director for National Resilience and Strategy at the National Cybersecurity Centre. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Matthew Side. Today, inside GCHQ. Part 2. Through the Security Barriers. I've just arrived at GCHQ. I had to get through a few layers of security, give in my mobile phone, my laptop. Just been issued with a badge that will help me to get into secure areas. It's very rare for journalists to be allowed into this building, but it's a day of off-the-record and on-the-record briefings about this critical part of Britain's security and the West's security infrastructure. And I, frankly, I can't wait to, to hear what they've got to say. The plan for my day was to meet a number of members of staff to find out what they do here at this donut-shaped building on the outskirts of Cheltenham. One of the things I've always been interested in and have often written about is how teams can best work together, how, amongst other things, diversity of thought and what you might call cognitive diversity helps to get the best out of human groups. Here at GTHQ, it's what they call the right mix of minds. And it's something the director, Sir Jeremy Fleming, talked about in yesterday's episode. Regardless of your background, regardless of your skill set, whether you're from the north of the country or from here in Gloucestershire where we are today, regardless of your ethnic background and regardless of how you think, when we bring together those mix of minds, we can do seemingly impossible things. One of the people I met was Charlotte, who has dyslexia. 
I'm an analyst in the 24-hour operation centre. It's part of that working shift that basically is GCHQ's out-of-hours response to anything that may happen in the UK right. and threaten the UK. So terrorist attacks, cybercrime, like the big things. Now, as I understand it, you're now going to give me some kind of a test to see whether or not I have what it takes to potentially be hired by GCHQ. Now, talk talk us through what I'm going to do here. So this scenario is about a target called Nathan L. Edwards, and he's recently been holding meetings with someone called Gregorio G. I also have some cool records for you. So this is very similar to the sort of data that we get on shift. What we need to do is work out who Gregorio is and what his number is. And we need to find a phone call that took place between Nathan L and Gregorio. You've given me the raw material that a very smart person would need to get the answer correct to this question. And this is the kind of thing you give to potential recruits, this kind of a, a, a task. Yeah. <laughs> tell you what, I'm feeling slightly nervous now. So what we have here, I've got a list of telephone numbers um, uh, starting. These are Nathaniel's contacts. Yeah. I will I'll talk you through it, yeah. how I would approach it. And often the first thing we have to go on is a contact list. All we know is this is Nathan L's contacts, and we need to find a Gregorio G in this list. Once we've found the number... We will then look through all the call records to find the phone call that took place. So you just need to find the Gregorio and the Christian. Then. Yeah. So these are the contacts. So you need to look at this one first. And there we go. Oh, that's so I've spotted him. You've already spotted him. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah. It's often at this point um, I would think of nicknames or shortened versions of the names. So Gregorio, I would probably put down to Greg. Oh, Greg Griffin. Greg Griffin, I see. So we know it's Gregorio G. <laughs> yes, I are. Right, 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 right. Yeah, like it. That's his number there. And the way that uh, my dyslexia presents itself is I'm usually quite good at spotting patterns. So I don't take the whole number. I normally just take the last like, three or four digits. And then I use that as I'm scanning through all the results to look for anything that jumps out at me. So then it will just be scanning through to find anything. So there's one there. There's another one there. (laughs) Having found the times and dates of calls between Nathaniel and Gregorio, Charlotte presents me with some extra intelligence to help solve the case. So we have some emails. And these are from Nathan L. His Nathan L. Edwards, so his email is Eddie, to Greg the Griffin. (laughs) Yes, I like it. (laughs) Um, Is that it? These are the emails? These are the emails. So they're cryptic, are they? Yeah. The email... From Eddie85 to our friend Greg the Griffin at gmail.com starts with D O B D L O F L. So complete gobbledygook. So we need to break the code. How on earth do you do that? Immediately for me, and I don't know, this is just how my, my brain works, and I can often spot patterns and make weird loops and links to things. So we know his name is Gregorio. Yes. That Gregorio is eight letters. This is also eight letters. Wow. What you think the D maps to G? Yeah. O to R? Yeah. Because of the eight-letteredness Yeah, that's that. something like all it takes for me is like a small thing like that, and then I'll, I'll kind of run with it for a little bit and see what happens. What Charlotte has suggested, and what I would never have thought of, was that the letters used in the email have all been shifted a few places in the alphabet, 
So Greg is now spelled D-O-B-D. The alphabet used in the email has effectively been shifted back three letters in comparison to a normal alphabet. So what I would also do is just look at the other emails we've got. So this one starts off the same way. So the same D-O-B-D. So it's really sort of having a bit of imagination to try and figure out what the person at the other end might have been thinking. When you got involved here, did you find that you were bringing a perspective that was distinctive from others? In the teams I've been in, there's often been things I can see that other people don't see. And being able to look at large amounts of data and just spot patterns that people think are a bit weird managed to match up in the end with what we thought was happening. I actually um, joined after seeing an article in, in BBC saying GCHQ would like to hire 100 dyslexic spies. I was at uni. Um, I didn't have the support, my reasonable adjustments for my exams. I applied thinking like they're not going to want me without my degree. And they offered me a job. So I actually dropped out of university to take the job here. And it's like the best decision I've ever made. <laughs> Do I get the job, having sat here and allow you to... I mean, is there, is there anything that GCHQ... Do you get brownie points for allowing a more brilliant person to solve on your behalf, but kind of pretend that oh, you're not involved? solved it, though. No. Sorry. Is that good leader? Does that count? Charlotte's dyslexia helps her problem-solving. But what about people from other backgrounds? Not necessarily neurodiverse, but not conforming to that old view we might have of spooks, the people described in Le Carre novels, seemingly all uptight, Oxbridge-educated white men. In a staff cafe in an area cordoned off just for us, lest we overhear some secret conversations, I met a young British Bangladeshi woman whose life was changed when, at the age of 16 or 17, a teacher at her state comprehensive planted the seed of what she might do with her interest in mathematics. Now she works in GCHQ's computer network operations team, and to protect her identity, her answers have been revoiced. I think the way that it's described on our website is that we infiltrate computers of terrorists, people who are committing like serious crime offences, and disrupt their communication channels. So go on, tell me about your background. How did you get into GCHQ? Well, it's a bit of a weird story. I didn't even know that GCHQ existed until college. Before that, um, my mates knew what they wanted to do. I literally had no clue I was drifting. I liked maths, so um, I decided to study further maths at college. And it was then, in one of my first maths lectures, that my teacher said to us that you could do loads of things with maths. Um, You could even become a spy and you could work for GCHQ. She said it in a tone that implied that none of us would ever be able to do it. But in my head, it was at that moment that something just clicked and I was like, this is literally what I want to do. What did you study at university, by the way? I studied maths at university. I, you know, didn't go to a red brick university. You have this idea that a lot of people here at GCHQ went to Oxbridge or to big historic universities but actually a lot of people here have so many different backgrounds some people come in as an apprentice so there's so much variety with the people that come in here what's it like psychologically coming to a place to work where you have to keep secrets how do you learn to censor yourself and how does it feel having to do that 
some of my family know what I do, some of them don't. You know, it's just kind of you avoid answering the question. We say a lot, you don't realise just how much people want to talk about themselves until you stop being able to talk about yourself. So some people will be like, how's work? And I'll be like, yeah, it's, it's fine, how's work? And then they'll talk like for an hour about the problems that they're having. I suppose one of the weirdest things is I work with people I'm also friends with. So I can have like a massively open conversation at work. We will sit down and have lunch together at work. We'll talk about those minute details of everything that we're doing. And then dropping me off home and in the car, we just, you know, we just can't talk about work. It's not psychologically difficult. I've noticed in James Bond films and like all the newer spy films, they kind of make it out like this kind of job has a massive psychological toll but actually it's not that bad it's a bit frustrating because I'm proud of everything that I've done since I've been here and I'm so proud of my team and I just want to shout about it but I can't um my mum's like how's work and I just say yeah like I'm doing well in in terms of the work you do how intellectually stretching is it I mean you've got a mess degree do you sometimes come in and think goodness me this is like the toughest math conundrum I've faced or, or is it more have you found it more mainly routine work that you're doing before joining you kind of get this assumption that everybody needs to be Alan Turing to come here but in reality when it comes to the problems that we face they're not problems that I would have thought I'd been able to solve outside um, you know, before I joined, it would have just been like, well, clearly that's impossible and obviously I'm not going to be able to do that. And then when I got in and I was working on a project and I looked at it and I was like, well, I can't do this. But you're surrounded by people who are like, well, let's give it a go and let's try and let's do this. You know, you get told, how about you look at it from this angle and I look at it from that angle. And I think that the first thing about working on difficult problems at GCHQ is that you're not actually doing them by yourself. I'm working on things that stretch my mind and I suppose one of the things about it is that you've got to be a very quick learner and there's things that two weeks ago I literally would have had no idea about how to go about doing it but you have to really really quickly learn as much as you can so that you can tackle the problems and nothing feels impossible in this building which is really one of the coolest parts of working here. And when you meet with other people to focus on a difficult problem and they're from different backgrounds, they think in slightly different ways, is that a challenge? Do you find it easy to communicate with people who might be from an arts background and come at a problem from a completely non-quantifiable way in the way that you perhaps might do? Or, or do you find that you rub along well? What sort of determines whether a team gels effectively or, or, or unaffectively? Well, we do it quite well, particularly where I work, because there's kind of various rules that you play by. One of those is assume noble intent. So when somebody is challenging you on something, you assume that they're not challenging you for the sake of challenging you. They're just challenging you from the point of view that they're coming from, which is really, really good and really healthy because when we're making decisions about difficult things, then it's really important that you're willing to listen. That phrase, assume noble intent, is that something you heard here? Yeah, definitely. I'm not sure where I first heard it. I think it's definitely something that's like in the culture because we're all here for one thing and that's to protect the UK. 
Nobody is like out for themselves. Nobody is out to be the champion of anything because I'm not being funny, but if you do well, the only people that can pat you on the back are the people who work here. Like you can't go home and, you know, tell your mom why you're amazing. You know, you can't say I'm brilliant and um, you just can't do that. And we know how important it is to have those challenges. It takes a while to sort of settle into it because you learn so much. But once you do and once you can put your point of view forward, then the way that people disagree here, I think it's really helpful. You know, in order to limit risks, then you need people who disagree with you and you need people to kind of point it out to you. So really, it's just built into the way that we work and it's really just built into the, the culture here. Coming up, what are the modern threats the organisation is dealing with? But first... I'm James Marriott, a columnist, book reviewer and podcast reviewer for The Times. It's my job to explain and contextualise our turbulent social and cultural landscape in a way that is as interesting, informative and as original as possible. I can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. All episodes of Queenie premiere June 7th, streaming on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. GCHQ has a long history dating back to the First World War when it was known as the Government Code and Cipher School. During World War II, it was located at Bletchley Park, a name that has become synonymous with the cracking of the Nazi Enigma codes as dramatised in the film The Imitation Game. The operational head of the organisation for a large part of its early history was Alistair Denniston. Denniston's one of our most famous leaders. He led the organisation right the way from its inception in November 1919 right the way through to... 1942, when there was a massive reorganisation at Bletchley Park. The man telling me about Deniston and GCHQ's past is the organisation's departmental historian, 
David Abratat. So he's our longest serving director and the crux of the knowledge and insight he had from doing the work in the First World War, I think really opened his eyes to the world we inhabit, signals intelligence, cryptanalysis is a team game. You need diversity of thoughts, you need people with all these different disciplines to work together. And that is still true in 2022. We need people from all backgrounds, all elements of society who can contribute to this team sport. It's a complex business, signals intelligence. You need very, very highly astute, intelligent, but also pragmatic people who are passionate about their role in national security, which is, you know, a steady stream, part of our DNA. And certainly, you know, I know from my own experience and speaking to members of staff throughout the organisation, how proud we are of this period of Bletchley Park from 1939 to 46. And if you had to pick out the biggest breakthrough that Bletchley Park made during the Second World War, encapsulate it and and the significance it had, what what would you pick out? Well, everybody knows about the enigma and and the story of Alan Turing, Gordon Balshman, you know, breaking one of the hardest mathematical challenges uh, in the world. But, you know, I've got a very personal uh, interest in the development of Colossus, which was the first digital computer um, commissioned in 1943 uh, with the GPO, the the post office research station in Dollis Hill, under the direction of uh, Tommy Flowers. Now, the story behind that's an interesting one, but it was built and commissioned to attack another German cycle machine called the Lorentz. And that was used across occupied Europe on very, very strategic communications links with the German high command. And it was called the fish network, but actually called it the fish network. So every link in that network had an individual fish name like Bream or Tench, whatever. So the most important link that Bletchley intercepted in the entire Second World War was between von Rundstedt's headquarters in Paris, which was linked to Berlin. And the Colossus that was put in place was allowing insight strategically and intercepting that link. Um, And you can imagine in June 1944, what was being passed on that link and the start of the Normandy campaign and the the opening up of the Second Front in, in Western Europe. Stanley Sedgwick, who I wrote about in one of my books, Rebel Ideas, who is a crossword enthusiast. He played the Daily Telegraph crossword, I think, on his daily commute from the suburbs into the city. I think he was an accountancy clerk, and he won a competition, I think January the 12th, 1942, and somebody from the forerunner of GCHQ was there and then hired him to go to Bletchley Park because they thought this person who's good at solving crosswords will have a particular insight. The way that one writer has characterised the relevance of crosswords is that national newspapers have only a few crossword setters, and very good crossword solvers are able to kind of identify the setter from the first one or two clues. What philosophers call theory of mind, they're good at getting to the minds of other people, mentalising and that that's important when code breaking. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, that's right. It's that follow-on around mix of minds, people who have deep analytic processes, and, and often that links to people with cognitive neurodiverse ways of interpreting data, of, of looking at the world in a different way. And you know, I've got a, a very sort of personal account of that. I used to work in operations for uh, many, many years, and some of the best analysts I've ever worked with were very, very badly dyslexic just the way they could interpret data and visualise things 
we're often very different to other members of staff. It sort of brings and encapsulates that whole team ethic and, and the team dynamic. We all bring something to the party and the collective, the output, is the rich intelligence that we provide to the government. So, if the successes of the staff at GCHQ are down to teams with diversity of thought as well as background, what are the threats the country is facing? In yesterday's episode, the director of GCHQ, Sir Jeremy Fleming, mentioned the importance of cybersecurity, and one branch of the organisation deals with just that. Hi, I'm Paul Maddinson. I'm the director for National Resilience and Strategy at the National Cybersecurity Centre. The National Cybersecurity Centre has the aim of making the UK the safest place to live and work online, so we do work with everybody. Cybersecurity is about raising everybody's ability to uh, resist cyber threats. So there's a lot of malicious activity on the internet, both from cyber criminals, uh, hacktivists, you know, people just trying to uh, prove a political point online, but also a lot of nation state activity that we observe. So cybersecurity is about defending yourself from those threats. I prefer to talk about cyber resilience, so the ability to continue to deliver services despite cyber threats. We obviously advise government itself to become more cyber resilient, but I think the CNI and the wider economy is, is massively important. CNI is Critical National Infrastructure. First and foremost, we are the National Technical Authority, so we put out advice and guidance to organisations of all sizes in all sectors about how they can implement really good cybersecurity based on the latest research that we conduct and, and others conduct. In times of an incident, uh, we have the role for government to coordinate the cross-government response to nationally significant cyber incidents, and that might be involved going out and supporting an organisation on the ground if it's a significant bit of the CNI. But equally, it's about uh, making sure that we get the right information and provide support and guidance to an organisation when they're going through a cyber incident. What's the most serious cyber attack that we've suffered in the last decade or so? It looked at first like an attack just on hospitals in the UK, but it's now becoming clear that this malicious software has run riot around the world. Russia, the United States and many points in between have been hit by what's now a common form of cyber crime. Uh, WannaCry is clearly the one. In 2017, it was a global malware attack that originated from North Korean cyber criminals but spread widely and caused massive disruption. Affected the UK quite badly in a number of different sectors, particularly the health sector. It was probably the most disruptive, but thankfully, due to the efforts of, of lots of people, uh, managed to restore services fairly quickly. So we have a categorisation schema for cyber incidents. We call it C1, C2, C3. And C1 is a kind of a national cyber emergency. And, and we've never had one of those in the UK so far, although it has been expected. What are the state actors that most strike fear into you, if I can put it that way? What, you know, we, one might imagine, one might be surprised that North Korea would be a serious force in, in... Yeah, we've called out four state actors who have particularly conducted malicious activity against the UK or UK's interests, and Russia and China are sort of at the top of the list. Iran is also in there, but then there is North Korea. And North Korea is a bit different. So often it's difficult to distinguish between cyber criminal activity and North Korean sort of state-sponsored political activity because North Korean cyber criminals are often trying to generate revenue for the state as much as, for example, steal secrets or whatever. Is there any difference in the sophistication or the amount of resource that's going into them? I mean, to what extent is... China, Russia seeing this as a massively significant part of the competition with the West? Oh, I think that's very, very clear. They put a lot of resources into it. So the cyber threats we see and we've called out originate from 
the intelligence organizations or the security organizations in those countries, which are, you know, thousands and thousands strong that have been around for years. So it's quite clearly they're investing a lot of money into it. There is some very sophisticated capabilities, but equally, and, and this is where cyber resilience comes in, a lot of cyber incidents are caused by fairly simple vulnerabilities that have been exploited. So even a, a large nation state won't use a sophisticated capability if they can quite easily break into a network and do what they want to do. What would be a win for a state actor with a particular attack? You can see how China would think, you know what, if, if we weaken the economy through lots of small attacks on individuals, or if people have criminals attacking them, that's also negative for the West. What would constitute a win for China with a one-off state attack? What we see from both nation states and cyber criminals is they've got very clear intent. And with nation states, it's often strategic geopolitical intent. So the biggest damage from a nation state is potentially a years and years of cyber espionage, stealing intellectual property, which undermines the economic success and our ability to stay ahead in science and technology. How would they access and steal IP. By breaking into a network, whether that's a company that is pursuing advanced research or a, a universities, because they also get targeted by nation states, looking for sensitive information that isn't released publicly or ahead of it, you know, released publicly in order to gain advantage in a particular field of science and technology or a particular economic advantage that they might get. So, so that's one strategic intent that we see from nation states. The other strategic intent is often to gain geopolitical advantage, you know, get military intelligence, you know, fairly classic kind of espionage. But equally, there's a lot that goes on in terms of information operations and trying to influence the broader political landscape. So stealing information in order to then leak into an information operation and try and influence a political debate on something is clearly a tactic that, that nation states use. But cyber criminals... To influence a political debate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the 2016 hack of the Democratic Party in the US and the subsequent release of that information during the elections is a very clear example of that. But cyber criminals almost have a, a much clearer intent, which is to make money. It's just they're very inventive and very sort of capable in finding different ways of doing that. And the current biggest cyber threat to the UK is ransomware. And that's uh, when cyber criminals will get access to a network, will encrypt the data on that network and demand a ransom to allow you to get back in. And they've become incredibly sophisticated, both in terms of the market model for running these operations frequently, but also they won't just encrypt the data. They'll um, steal sensitive data and then threaten to leak it online publicly in order to, to do a double extortion. And this is the cyber threat, you know, from different groups, not just the one single criminal group, but from different cyber criminal groups that we see most clearly harming both the UK and our allies. And it's unfortunately a really difficult threat to tackle because the business model is very successful and they're making a lot of money. People are paying ransoms and that means they just come back and keep doing it. I've just left the uh, GCHQ building, the donut Looking back on it, I can see a huge satellite dish, or what I think is a satellite dish, just over to my right, and yeah, intelligence officers walking in and out of this iconic building. It's been a, f a quite fascinating day, a day where I've met the heads of cybersecurity experts on Russia, on China, the director of GCHQ, and two things um, spring to mind. One is we're very lucky to have an organization like this, as committed as it is, to try and protect our nation. Uh, I'm glad and feel some comfort that the many risks around the world are being dealt with um, by a very bright group of people with a strong sense of mission. And the second is that the world is a 
much more complex place than it was when Jeremy, the director, started at uh, MI5. And I think that intelligence, cybersecurity are going to be mission critical is one of the messages I think that I've really learned today in the great power competition that's going to shape the next 50 years of our species' histories. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, Matthew Side, and my guests, Charlotte, an analyst at GCHQ, an unnamed member of the Computer Network Operations Team, Departmental Historian David Abrutat, and Director at the National Cybersecurity Centre, Paul Mallinson. You can read more about my visit to GCHQ at thetimes.co.uk. The producer was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you have a story that you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.